Good morning. It's good to see each one of you here. Um, let's let's just take a, mo a moment here to have a time of fellowship. Stand up, shake somebody's hand, try to move outside of your normal circles. If there's somebody that you don't usually talk to, say hello to them, and uh, then we'll get started here in a minute. All right, we'll go ahead and get started now. A uh, few announcements as we're, we're getting started here. First of all, we prayed last week, and we, we asked you to pray for Chelsea and, and for Ken and for others. Um, good news on Chelsea, she had her baby, uh, Matthew Scott, and it was early, early yesterday morning, right? Yeah, and everything went well, and, and both of them are healthy, so just continue to pray for Chelsea and for Andy and their family, and uh, that God would continue to bless. So an answered prayer there, and then Ken got a, a good report from, from the doctor, uh, and so that was a, an answer to prayer, but continue to pray for him. Uh, he said he's just feeling very weak and, and uh, needs our prayers, so continue to ask God to, to supply him with, with strength. Uh, next week, we're going to have a special offering at the end of the service for the help office. Um, the help office, they, they do a good job, and a lot of times when people come to us as a church, uh, we, we refer them to the help office, and they're able to help meet, meet needs uh, there and so we want to be sure to support that that ministry that's going on there so that'll be next week and we'll probably do it for a couple weeks uh, at the end of the service so um, just keep that in mind now this week the big thing that we got coming up is our rock the block in in Lewisport at Chat, uh, Chapman Park I was joking with Daniel yesterday uh, I guess if you're around here you don't say Lewisport you say Lewisport uh, so Maybe I, I better start saying it Lewisport instead of Lewisport, but uh, that will be this week, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and third, Thursday. Uh, it'll start officially at 6 o'clock, but we want to get there early. we got to set up. We've got inflatables and different stuff that we need to set up. So if you're able to get there like at 5 o'clock, uh, that, would, that would be great. And any time before 6 would be wonderful. And we need plenty of volunteers even if, you, you know, if you've got kids and you feel like, well, I can't really volunteer or help, bring your kids out. There's going to be crafts and games, and uh, uh, Lindsay's going to be doing a Bible study or a Bible lesson each night and, uh, for, for the kids. So uh, just if that's all you can do is just show up and bring your kids, then, then be sure at least to do that. And there'll be food there as well. There'll be a meal each night, um, so you won't have to cook. So that, if, if for no other reason, come out for the food. Uh, but, but we really need a lot of help with that, and we probably haven't done as good a job this year as we did last year with announcing that and getting sign-ups and everything, uh, but, but we need your help Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and pray for good weather as well for that. So for our scripture reading this morning, we're going to be in John 15 and verse number 12, John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. As followers of your Son, Jesus Christ, we recognize that one of the greatest commandments that he gave to us is that 
just as he loved us, that we would love one another. And we pray, Lord, because we recognize that we are falling short uh, in that commandment. We are failing to love one another as Christ has loved us. We recognize that, Lord. We are in the process, hopefully, of of thinking through that and and repenting of that sin. And we want to ask for your help in that repentance. Lord, we recognize that on our own, uh, sin is too great for us. Our, Our sinful natures drag us down. Uh, and, and we are unable to overcome the, the, the hindrances that are there in, in our lives. So we need your help and we need your strength in this work. We pray that at Union Baptist Church, we would truly have a community of believers that love one another as Christ has loved us. Lord, make that a reality here. We pray now for your blessing on this service as we worship you, as the word is preached, as we give. Lord, we just pray that in all of these things, you would be glorified, that your church would be edified and built up. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. If I could, I'd like to have our ushers come this morning as we continue our worship through giving. And as they're coming, I just want to kind of point something out that you may or may not see a connection between, but there, I think, is a connection in churches between a level of generosity that you see on display and a level of hospitality. And the, the connection in my mind between those two things that I see in Scripture is, is that the call to hospitality or the call to fellowship is a giving of yourself. And, and it's a generosity, an attitude of, of gratitude and generosity that we recognize we've received much from Christ, that he has inexhaustible supply. And so we open our homes, we open our lives, and then one of the other outflowings of that is that we open our pocketbooks to the, the gospel we're not asking, we don't say these things because we're, we need more money for ourselves. Uh, the, the gospel is funded by the giving and the generosity of the saints, the, the spread of the gospel. And so the more generous we become as God's people, the more far-reaching that gospel message can be through the, the efforts of Union Baptist Church. So will you pray with me? Fathers, we gather here this morning. We do, again, recognize that there is a need Uh, for fellowship, a need, O God, for community, a need, God, for generosity in our church. And I do feel that they all connect in ways that that could be articulated even more than what I've said this morning. What I'm certain of is that you've started a work in, in our church, and I'm also certain that you're faithful to complete what you've started. You never begin a project that doesn't get completed. You always count the cost. You're the one who taught us that it's necessary to count the cost. And God, you will never be slack in accomplishing what you've purposed to do. If there's any slack, it's on our side. And so this morning, God, our our simple prayer and and hope is that you would raise us up, that we would not be slack on our end of the promise, God, that we would be generous, that we would be giving to the furtherance of your kingdom and the gospel, that we would learn to give of our, our tithes and our offerings, of our time, of our gifts, of our lives, of our homes, God, so that the kingdom is advanced. And we pray that you would complete that work in us, God. We thank you that you are sufficient to meet every need and that we can't outgive the grace of God. And we pray that you would open our hearts, O Lord, that we would give and give extravagantly and give generously. And we pray for that, O God, for your glory and for the good of our church and for the joy of participating in the giving because it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. We thank you for that this morning, God, in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Man, that was weak.
Good morning. Hey, there we are. All right. I am so excited to be here. I'm always excited to be here, but I'm even more excited when I get the opportunity to preach. And this just sort of happened. Um, sometimes it happens by planning, and sometimes it happens by providence. And this is more of the providence kind of preaching opportunity than planning. And I always get excited about those because I'm convinced that when God changes things up, he changes things up for a reason. It's not because of any deficiency in Andrew's preaching. I'm not hinting to that in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I do feel like, based on the sermon series that we've been listening to, you know, I started to have some things bubble up within my own heart, and I sort of reached out to Andrew and said, hey, at some point in the future, I, I might have something coming on here. Is there any opportunity? And he said, well, it would really work good if you could do it this week because we plan to be out of town most of the week. Or this coming Sunday, we plan to be out of town most of the week. And I thought, well... That's faster than I expected, but uh, God was gracious in, in helping me throughout the week to prepare and providing opportunities for others to help with Sunday school. So <clears throat> I want you to go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 primarily. So that's just uh, right after 2 Peter, just a little bit before you get into Revelation. It's, they're, they're real thin back through those pages, but we'll be in 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 through 17, and while you're looking for that, I just want to ask some questions, and I don't need you to answer them, obviously, but I want you to think about them because I, I hope they help to set the table for what we're going to look at and where we're going to go this morning, so just think within yourselves, answer within yourselves, who here this morning desires to be more godly? I'm certain that there are people that I'm speaking to and have asked that question of, and immediately you're like, yeah, me, I want to be more godly. That's the answer to the question for myself. I desire to be more godly. So who would like the abundant life this morning? And again, if we were showing hands, some, some of us have. We want the abundant life. We desire that. And I, too, am eager to, to have all that God has promised me in his word. We could ask, who wants to see the gospel flourish? And obviously, many of us here this morning would say, yeah, absolutely, God, I desire to see the gospel flourish. I could ask it this way, who needs to have their joy made full this morning or complete this morning? And that'll land on a different segment of people. There are some that come in here who just feel depleted, whose joy is not brimming up and overflowing. And then my final question before we get into the text this morning is, who longs to walk in the light? And I'm going to tell you that the answer to every last one of these questions is found, I believe, in the text that we're going to look at this morning. I think they flow straight out of what we're going to open up in 1 John here. They're different questions, but they're the same answer, so to speak, to those questions. Um, and so I want us to see that as we open up the, the epistle of 1 John. So if you're there, read with me uh, verses 1 through 7. John writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. It's a long introduction and here's why. Or he goes on rather. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy 
or your joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And I'm going to stop there. We may reference verses 8 and 9 at some point, but I'm going to stop there uh, with our text for this morning. I'm going to ask that you pray with me as we begin. God, as we gather here this morning, very simply, I pray for the unction of the Spirit that you would do through me what I can't do in my own power, that you would do in the listeners, God, your people, what they cannot do in their own ability. And would you cause this moment to be a sacred moment, God? These next few moments as we gather here to hear your word, would you put an eagerness in the hearts of your people? And would you put an authority and a clearness in the word being proclaimed? God, not one thing that I have to say here that is honorable and right and true is, is my own thinking. I have been in your word, and I believe what I have to say is biblical and right, but it's not me, it's you. And to the extent that it's helpful, it's helpful because you, O oh God, are the God who helps us in our time of need. You are the God of wisdom. You instruct us, you teach us, you train us, and there is nothing original in here from me. This comes from you, I believe, and I pray that you would apply it to the hearts of your people and that your sheep would feed this morning on the bread of life. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, real quickly, I just also want to point out, I know that I have like a thousand points when I preach and I'm usually fast and furious, and sometimes it helps us stay awake and sometimes other people shut down because they don't understand how to keep up with all that. There should be in your bulletin a handout that has some fill in the blanks that'll help you keep track, hopefully. I hope that's not a distraction. I wanted to try that this morning. There's some fill in the blanks that'll help you track with what's being said up here and maybe have something to reflect on. Uh, when we're done. So I have five observations that I want to start with from the text that we read just a while ago. These five observations are as follows. Number one, fellowship is godly. I mean, I think we see that right out of the passage of Scripture. John says that I'm, I'm giving you something which was from the beginning, and he goes on to open that up, and, and, and notice there's sort of an echo here of two verses in my mind. There's sort of an echo back all the way to the very, very, very beginning of your Bibles, to Genesis. In the beginning was God. You know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then John 1, 1, in the beginning was God, or was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so there's these two beginning statements. And then John, who wrote the, the Gospel of John, who, who had that statement about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he uses that same phrase here again, that what we have, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then he launches into this whole idea, and he, what he's showing us here is, is that fellowship, which is the point of what he's talking about here, is godly. That's the, that's the primary foundation for what I have to say this morning, is that fellowship isn't something that I've come up with or that Andrew's come up with as a gimmick for church growth. Fellowship is, is, is foundational to the relationship that God the Father has with God the Son and with God the Holy Spirit and that they have with each other. It's intertrinitarian love, and it's always existed. There was never a time when God was not. 
There's never a time, and we can't wrap our minds around that. We, I talked with Aiden and with Rick yesterday, and the idea of an eternity past for me is harder to comprehend than eternity future because I'm used to origin. I'm used to a starting point. And what this verse tells us is that there is no starting point to fellowship. It's always existed. It's more real than the pew you're sitting in. It's foundational and fundamental to the relationship of God himself, and therefore it has to be foundational and fundamental to the relationship that we have within the brotherhood of the saints. And that's exactly the two points that John makes in this text. You can't have fellowship with God without fellowship with saints, and you can't have fellowship with saints without fellowship with God. And notice, this is not in my notes, but notice how those two things beautifully fit together with what Jesus summarized the law to be, two major commandments, love God and love your neighbor. So this all folds into the entire scheme of Scripture right here. This is New Testament Christianity. It's not a gimmick. It's not something that I've come up with or Andrew has come up with so that we can control and manipulate what goes on here. It's foundational to the existence and and being of God. Fellowship is godly. Now, the second thing I want to point out here is that fellowship is life-giving. We see that again in verses 1, 2, and and 3, really. And he goes on, he says in verses 1 and 2, three different times he mentions life. Uh, That which which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then verse 2 begins, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you. What are we proclaiming? John says we're proclaiming eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And now he's saying, that's the very message that I'm proclaiming to you. That's what I'm attempting to do, is proclaim not an original thought, but what John says Jesus said to him about, here's how you have life. It's a life-giving fellowship. It, it proceeds from God, and it, it comes to us, and we are able to be in that fellowship and a part of that fellowship. And if you want life this morning, then you must also want fellowship. Now, you didn't come in here thinking that, but that's, that's, it's part and parcel. And to the extent that we are not where we need to be as a church, and to the extent as personally we're, we're not where we need to be loving God and feeling fulfilled, there is a corollary here that part of that is probably due to the same thing that we're recognizing, that within this fellowship, God love you all, we just don't fellowship. We are not, there is a life that flows through the channel of fellowship, and so For some of us who are in the community group theme and thinking about habits of grace, we could add this. It's actually the last section in our our material that we're looking at. It's one of those avenues or channels through which the grace of God abounds to his people. It's the word of God, the prayers of the saints, and the fellowship of the community of believers. And that's, that's in those channels of grace. If we want more of God, if we want more life, if we want more joy, if we want more satisfaction, we find it in fellowship, not apart from fellowship. And that's counterintuitive to everything we think we know because we, we're, we're, we are so used... I'm used to my own playlist. It's hard for me to sit in a car when, when Lindsay and the kids have the radio because it's either country or something I don't listen to. I've got my own musical style, and they they hate it. But that's why I love Pandora, because Pandora plays only what I want, and I can thumb down anything that I don't like, and it never plays it for me again. And we're used to that. We're used to playing to what we want and making life individual for ourselves. And fellowship runs sort of against that grain. 
Fellowship requires us to enjoy life together where we bring our different tastes and desires into the same room and we have to learn to quit thumbing down everything. It calls us to something, but where we think that robs joy from our life, it, it creates abrasion in, in our, in our uh, relationships with each other. God says, actually, church, that's where life starts. That's where life begins to flow to you. It's life-giving, fellowship is. Number three, fellowship within the local church. And I, I want to stress that. We're not talking about Cheers. Lindsay and I went back, and, and we haven't finished it, but I had never watched Cheers growing up. It wasn't something that was appropriate for kids, and Mom and Dad didn't let me watch it. But I will tell you that I've gone back and started watching Cheers, and everybody loves that kind of an atmosphere. And I heard a, a preacher saying on, as I was preparing for this that, that a tavern or a bar atmosphere is just about as close to the idea of fellowship that the world can get. There is a, there's a whole lot within fellowship that you would find in that atmosphere, but it does stop entirely short of God's goal. Because true fellowship, as we've seen here, has to begin with a foundation of God. And you won't find that in the local bar. You will find friendship and connection, but you will stop short of life-giving fellowship. We do all want to go to a place where everybody knows our name. And we want to go to that place and sit down and talk to people that, that have the same problems we do. And we want to see that everybody's problems are just the same. That's, that's part of it. But it's not. we don't find that at the bar. We don't find that at the club. We don't find that at work with our, our close workmates. We find the true answer to satisfy our soul as God has designed it within the local church. And that's what we see as deficient. And we need that, though. So fellowship within the local church, see this in verse 3, is one of the goals of the gospel. John says we've got all this that we've had from the beginning, this idea of life and eternal life and all that, verse 3, that, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And you don't get that on a bar stool. You don't get that at work. You don't get that anywhere except where the saints of God gather as the saints of God and decide to make God the focus of their conversation. It's not even just when Christian people hang around after church and talk about the same things the world talks about. We call that socializing. That's not even fellowship. Fellowship is when we move past that, which is good, and we need that, and it's sort of a training wheels to fellowship, but fellowship is when we stop with the weather and sports and we start interjecting a godliness in our conversation and we start to learn where each other's at with their walk of faith and we start to hear what burdens each other has and we start to say things like, brother or sister, can I pray with you just right now? We can go in the other room or right here, but I, I, I sense your, your need, I feel your burden, and I want, I want to pray for you. That's one way that we cross over from socializing into fellowship. It's when we listen to each other's struggles and, and we, we hear the problem you're having with your kid and we offer, here's some, some godly advice, not just advice. Dr. Phil can give you that. We're talking about godly counsel and we begin to interject ourselves into each other's lives in ways that won't happen if we're not intentional about it. And that's when we cross over that threshold from just socializing as the people of God into fellowshipping and giving life to one another. Nobody's going to have life because you told them what the weather report was going to be for today or that the Cubs won the World Series or that the, you know, your sports team's looking real good for the, the spring training. And None of those things give life. They might excite us for a moment, but when we walk away, that doesn't help us with our soul's burden. Fellowship within the local church then, according to John, is one of the reasons Jesus Christ came and lived and died. 
It is one of the goals of the gospel is that you and I might fellowship. Number four, fellowship causes us to flourish by completing our joy. That's verse four. John says, and we are writing these things so that our, and one, other translations say your, and I like that one better, because really you can understand that as a plural hour, like me, us apostles, and you church members, and that's the way I want us to see it. We're writing these things so that all of our joy may be complete. The entire church. He didn't, John's not saying, I'm writing so that I can be joyous because I've written to you. He's saying, I'm proclaiming these things. I'm writing these things to you, church, so that me and you together within fellowship with one another might have a completeness of joy. Our joy will not be complete without fellowship with God's people. So we long, every last one of us long to be in fellowship. We long for connection. We long to belong somewhere. And we look for it in all the wrong places. God is saying it's within the body of Christ that that need will only truly be met. We might come very, very close with a lot of the world's relationships, but we will never cross over into complete joy apart from Christian fellowship. God chose to create mankind with the capacity for meaningful fellowship. He chose to do that. Think about this for just a second. He could have chosen not to do that, I suppose. I don't believe that my dog has the same kind of fellowship with other dogs that I have the capability of having with fellow believers. Do they like each other? And does my dog like to be around other, other animals? Sure, you can tell. But they don't ever talk about Jesus with each other. There's no soul uh, enriching experience. It's just that, hey, there's another dog. Oh, isn't this nice? Well, that's, we, we just stop on that with each other. Hey, there's another person. They work in the same place I do. Isn't this nice? We've got the same shared experience. And what the gospel is saying is that we need more than that. What the scriptures are teaching is that there is more than that, and we need the Christ that resides in each other. We need to be, we need to be giving and exchanging God with one another. The Spirit of God at work, fellowshipping through us, out of us, completing our joy because it will not and cannot be complete without it. And God created you different than the rest of creation with the, with the capacity for fellowship. This is one of the ways that we uniquely bear the image of God. Nothing else that God created is in God's image. We as human beings are alone of God's creation are the image bearers of God. And one unique way that we do that is by fellowship because fellowship is a foundation to the inner Trinitarian love. It is, a, it is foundational to our God. And so it must then be a mark of God's people. And I'm saying then that, that uniquely fellowship causes our joy to be complete in a way that only fellowship will complete it. So if you don't want your joy complete, continue not to fellowship, I guess would be the negative statement of that. But if you long for your joy to be complete, then press in with your pastors into learning how to do the uncomfortable thing of fellowship with one another. It won't always be as brutal and as, and as intimidating as it might seem like it will be right now. But we were created for meaningful fellowship. Therefore, fellowship was created for us by the God who works all things together for our good. Think of it that way. God designed fellowship to specifically meet need in your life. 
It wasn't a mistake. It's not an addendum. We didn't add it on. It's not an extra. You were created for fellowship with God and with each other. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a capacity for it, and we do. And, and otherwise, John wouldn't say, if you want your joy complete, then fellowship. But he does. Flourishing in fellowship requires effort and intentionality. I said that earlier, but I want to say it again. And so John says, we are writing these things to you so that your joy may be complete. So notice the intentionality in John. John says, I picked up pen and parchment because unless I intend to, to communicate something to you, you won't have it. It's, it's, it's not necessarily automatic to salvation that we, well, just automatically we're in fellowship with one another. No, automatically we're aligned where fellowship can happen. But fellowship doesn't happen without intentions. And John first picks up his pen and parchment and says, I'm writing to you because it's not automatic. I'm telling you what God wants because it's not intuitive. I'm intentionally sharing this hope with you because you won't find it otherwise. And so if he has to pick up pen and parchment and, and, and purpose to write, then we have to hear that message and purpose to implement. It's not an automatic. It's not going to happen if we sit back and, and, and don't engage and let somebody else do it. It will never happen in our lives. And so it's intentional and it takes effort but it will complete our joy. This implies that without intentional apostolic instruction, we might miss out on life-giving, joy-completing fellowship. And I think we're expected to see here that fellowship is as important to our, it is important to our faith. We must pursue it intentionally. Number five, fellowship with each other is an indicator that we are in fellowship with God. And we see that in verse seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. There's just no other way to, to see that and interpret that. We have fellowship with one another if we walk in fellowship with God. I think that implies, though, that we can be saved. We can be born again and not be fellowshipping well with God and not be fellowshipping well with each other. And flip that, if we're not fellowshipping well with each other, I don't care how well you think you're doing in your Christianity, you're not fellowshipping well with God. You might, be, you might have some joy, and you might be enjoying where you're at in your walk, and it might be better than it used to be, but I'm telling you that there's greater love for God to be had, and, it's, and part of the way that we get there is by learning to love God's people better. So we have, when we walk in fellowship with God, we walk in fellowship with each other. Reverse that, when we walk in fellowship with each other, we have greater fellowship with God. Do you want more of God? John says you can have more of God. You can have more of God by loving God's people better, by fellowshipping with God's people, by engaging God's people. So fellowship is an indicator that we are in fellowship with God. Fellowship with each other, rather, is an indicator that we're in fellowship with God. So I want to draw some conclusions from this, four conclusions. Only biblical fellowship, then, provides the life-giving effect God intends. Only biblical fellowship provides the life-giving effect that God intends. And I've said that. You can't have the resulting joy of fellowship or the life it imparts without meaningful connection with other believers. You cannot. It will not happen. You can have some joy. You can have some life. But you will not have the fullness and the abundance of life that God intends for you unless you fellowship with God's people. Number two, these connections are best achieved within the context of the local church. 
I'm not going to expound on that one much. I'll just say it again. These connections of fellowship are best achieved within the context of the local church. That leads me to number three then. Therefore, membership in a local church is important for enjoying fellowship on God's terms. And I added that in God's terms because that's the most important part of this. We don't define fellowship. We, God didn't say, I've got this word, fellowship. Anybody got a definition for it? Oh, oh, we'll go with that one. He defines what fellowship is. He has told us. He is teaching us now through this sermon series and through this particular text things about fellowship that we must affirm. These are the truths about fellowship that we need to, to believe and affirm. And, and so one of the things is, is that membership in a local church is important for enjoying fellowship on God's terms. John didn't write this letter to individual Christians. He didn't send it to their houses. He sent it to the church. because That's where God's people were, and that's where he says the context of fellowship takes place. Number four, fellowship doesn't come naturally, and I said that a little bit while ago. That indicates then that something has disrupted God's original design for fellowship. If from eternity past God has existed in perfect fellowship, and God created man with no sin, set him upright in his kingdom, in his, in his garden, he told him to rule and said, have fellowship with me and have fellowship with each other, and we don't have that now like we ought to, then something's happened. What has happened to disrupt the fellowship that we have with each other and our fellowship with God? Well, we have a biblical answer to that. It's the fall. Man's rebellion, original sin, these disrupt God's fellowship with us and our fellowship with Him and with each other. The fall then negatively affects our relationship with God. The fall negatively affects our relationship with ourselves. We have inner turmoil, mental illness, problems, fears, doubts, misgivings, all these things, the internal struggles that we have because of sin, because of the fall. And then because of the fall, we are negatively impacted or affected in our relationships with others. So what evidence do we see of these things? Well, corresponding to these three things, negative impact on our relationship with God, negative impact on our relationship within ourselves, negative impact on our relationship with others, I think we see these things. Sin and rebellion. That's, that corresponds to our broken relationship with God. Do we ever see sin in the world or rebellion in the world or in our own lives? The answer is yes. Yes, we do. Some of us saw it this morning. But sin and rebellion, it's disobedience to God's word or breaking God's law. That's evidence that this is true, that, that, that we have a negative impact on our relationship with God and it expresses itself on things that, doing things that God says not to do or not doing things God says we should do. But then how do we see the correlation between, I said there's a negative impact on, on the way that we interact with ourselves or our relationship internally. Well, that comes out in things like the shame of sin. And not just the, the shame of sin, like I know I did wrong and I'm, I'm so sad and I'm so sorry. Some of us live under constant fear. Fear is a result and a corollary to shame. It may, not, it may be a false sense of shame because if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for you. Your sins have been blotted out and there is no longer any guilt that hangs over you. God is no longer angry with you, but some of us still walk around with a sense of shame over sins committed. That causes us to live in fear of God's judgment. 
And yet the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. So some of us, are, we're, we're in turmoil in, internally because of a shame that we no longer need to bear because we have trusted in the cure for that shame. Others, that fear translates itself into shyness. And I'm going to say a little bit more about this here in a little bit. Or embarrassment or anxiety. These are ways that we struggle within ourselves under this, this banner of shame and what shame does to us. It isolates us and we let our embarrassment stop us from fellowship. Our shyness, our intimidation, our fear, and I can tell you as one who used to hide behind Mike Gaynor's legs every time somebody tried to talk to him in public, I know a thing or two about being shy. You don't know that now, because by the grace of God, I'm not as shy as I used to be. But I still tend toward, you put me in a room with people, I tend toward the wall or the corner and not really talking much. That's not what you see here. Because I've been gifted and called to do something that calls me completely in the opposite direction of that. But my natural inclination is toward, I'll just be silent in a room full of people. I'm not that interested in having conversation, maybe with one or two people. But I'm just not that social, and part of that is this, this, this fear of people, or this, this anxiety of being in a crowd. But this third thing, what's the, what's the corollary between our relationships being affected? It's broken relationships. And we see that in indifferent, indifference or estrangement or dysfunction or abuse. We see it in divorce. We see it in all kinds of things. These signal broken relationships with one another. So I want to kind of, I've said all that, now I want to kind of get a little bit deeper into this and focus on a couple of specific things. I want to focus specifically for a second on indifference, which Andrew called apathy last week. And then I want to talk about fear because I've already brought that subject up. And I want to tell you that indifference and fear are two sides of the same coin. It's the same thing fundamentally, or the same problem, if you will, fundamentally. Both indifference toward people and fear of engaging people are symptoms of unbelief. Think about that for just a second. I'm not saying the kind of unbelief that causes you necessarily to, to perish in, 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 under God's wrath. It could. But I'm, I'm not, what I'm not saying is, is that if you, if you wrestle with these, then you're, you're unsaved. I want to be clear that that's not what I'm saying. But even as believers, we can function in attitudes of unbelief. And indifference toward people's situation, as we saw uh, far, farther down into this epistle last week, or fear of being involved with people's lives are both symptoms of unbelief. And I hope to flesh that out for you. Indifference, again, is what Andrew talked about. It's seeing others in need with little or no concern for those needs. So as we've been pointing out here at our church, the, the context for people's needs is connection. It's fellowship. It's friendship. That's a particular necessary thing to, to uh, um, overcome right now in the life of our church. And here's where I want to get a little bit more personal. And if I step on toes, it's not that I'm trying to be mean, but I am trying to be honest. Some of you have grown indifferent in the area of relationships because you've been burned too many times by church people. If we had a show of hands, who's been offended or hurt by church people? Probably 90% of the hands in this room would go up. Maybe all of them. I don't know. I have. I know my family has. I know Andrew has. I know that I could probably point to everyone in here and just about with, with, with certainty say that we've all been hurt, burned in times past by church people. So this is what kind of happens then. You've, you've tried time and again to make friends in the church only to have those relationships within the church fail you. 
So what happens? Well, you've been hurt so many times that you just begin to give up on meaningful connection. You become content-ish. That's my, I coined that term. Content-ish. You heard me say it right. You're, you think you're content, but you're not. Just content-ish, you know, whatever. You know, and that's that indifference. You don't even care about yourself so much anymore. It used to hurt, now it don't hurt anymore. Whoopie-doo, I'll move on. I, I've learned that, that I don't need close friends to make it through life. You know, don't, I don't want to hear the sob story about your needs, and blah, 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 blah. It's that calloused attitude that leads us to be indifferent toward people. But the, the way that that's a symptom of unbelief is you've stopped, to believe, you've stopped believing that God wants you to be in fellowship. You've stopped believing that fellowship is necessary for your flourishing. You stop believing that it's valuable to pursue fellowship. That's unbelief because God says it's necessary and you're saying, no, it's not. I'm contentish with unfellowship. Well, that's not okay. As bad as that grammar is in that sentence I just uttered, it's not okay. We need to, we need to hear that, that this truth and we need to understand that this truth doesn't take place in a relationship-free vacuum. We can't be... We can't honor God's word. We can't take it seriously on the, on the matters of fellowship and the importance of fellowship in a relation-free relationship -free vacuum. So you simply can't obey God and say fellowship isn't important anymore. I've outgrown that need in my life. I've been hurt too many times. God's word doesn't stop being true because you've been hurt. Dad talked about mental toughness in his Sunday school lesson a while ago. And, and that's, a, that's a good point. It, it fits perfectly right here. We need mental toughness. We don't need to be the kinds of people that don't care. And mental toughness doesn't mean that we don't care anymore. It means that we continue to trust God's word to be true in the face of pain, in the face of adversity, in the face of trial and hardship. We don't get calloused and say, I don't care anymore. I don't care for God's people. I don't care for the church. I don't need that. Just me and Jesus. That's not mental toughness. That's indifference and unbelief. That's actually you, you trying to guard your heart because you are still vulnerable, because you are still weak and, and fearful on the inside, and it's a lack of faith. Mental toughness says it hurts, and it hurts every time, and it really stinks that it hurts, but I have a faithful God who's called me to fellowship, and it's worth it. It's worth it to pursue fellowship with God's people because I not only learn to love people better, but I learn to love God more, and I also feel the love of God in my life more strongly because of the fellowship that I have increasing between him and me because I have invested myself in the life of people that could very well hurt me. We open ourselves up to vulnerability in faith. So if this is you, if you're this contentish person, you're indifferent, I need you to see that because of the wrong you've suffered, you're not, you are now at greater risk of wronging others because you're at, at, at a risk of failing to engage them in the way God commands. And so it's like that cycle of abuse thing that we see in families. Abusive fathers or abusive mothers typically produce abusive kids who turn out to be abusive fathers or abusive mothers. It's a cycle. And so people who have been hurt by church people who have withdrawn tend to hurt other church people because they withdraw. That's not what you intended to do, right? You had every intention of self-preservation. You didn't see it as a problem. But now you're the person that nobody feels is friendly. You're one of the reasons that others now hurt. You can't honor God and, and forego fellowship. Those of us who tend toward indifference, we fail to engage others as God commands. And you may have learned through pain what Henry Adams once said, that one friend in a lifetime is much. 
two are many and three are hardly possible because you've tried and tried and tried and you just can't make good friends. And that, that, all that stuff may be true, but it's not truer than God's word. I don't know how else to put it. It's not, it's not more real than, than God's promise. It doesn't change one jot or tittle of the commands from God's word that I'm about to, to give you here. God's word, and in this text here, you hear the apostle John say, have fellowship with us. I take that as a command and not a suggestion. And then through the rest of the New Testament, we hear things like this, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality, be hospitable to one another, encourage one another, build one another up, bear one another's burdens, do good to everyone, meet together, encourage one another, have the same care for one another, teach one another. That's not just for the official teachers in the church or the pastors. Admonish one another again, not just simply a pastoral role. Be patient bearing with one another not one jot or tittle of those words is done away with because you've learned through pain that having friends is hard god didn't change the requirements because your life has been painful or my life has been painful he calls us to trust him through that pain and continue to believe his word and continue to to obey his commands he will not lighten one requirement because life is difficult for us but yet Jesus says, follow me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So some of us are suffering under the weight of our broken relationships and we think that being over here apart from everybody else keeps us safer. That increases your burden. Jesus says, if you want that burden lifted, then come into fellowship with me and with God's people. I promise it'll hurt, but I promise it will be, it'll be better. It will be glorious pain. It will be beautiful pain if that's possible. And these are just a few of the commands that Scripture gives to regulate fellowship and care for each other on God's terms. So when I said earlier, we do this based on God's terms, what's fellowship look like? It looks like these things plus more. There are like 59 one another verses throughout the Scripture, and I've given you like 14 of them. There's a ton of things that fellowship on God's terms calls us to be and to do as God's people. So failure to engage in fellowship on God's terms is to be indifferent toward your brothers and sisters. It's to be the, the kind of person Andrew preached against last week, and he did a wonderful job with that. But perhaps some of us have begin, begun to see our indifference as realism. We've even started to think that our, our indifference is wise. It's neither real or wise. It's foolish. Indifference is passive-aggressive defiance against God's word. You're not shaking your fist. You're simply failing to shake anything. You don't move or shake at all. You just sit around in indifference. And that's passive-aggressively defying God to his face. And I need us to see that this morning. It's the result of having failed to believe God's promises to supply our needs and his commands to give ourselves to others. So we've got two real problems right there when we've, when we've put God's promises aside as no longer applicable to me and God's commands as no longer binding on me. That is serious. That's a serious mistake to make, and indifference puts us in that place. Indifference is not your friend. But fear is the next problem. Fear leads us to neglect the commandments of God as well. I think we've all at times, uh, in times of indifference, had at times of indifference or fear. Some of us naturally gravitate toward indifference, while others of us naturally gravitate toward fear. And as we've noted earlier, they're both 
problems. They're both symptoms of unbelief, but fear is often a symptom of sin's shame. It's a, it's a, it's a pointer to the brokenness of life. But Paul challenges us in our fear by saying this, God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness. That's a pretty direct challenge to, I'm always afraid of what's going to happen if I obey God's commands. Paul says, listen, when you became a Christian, God took fear out and he gave you a spirit. And here's how he describes it. It's one of power, love, and sound judgment. God's encouragement to live without fear plays on repeat constantly throughout Scripture. And I want you to hear just a sampling of some of the places where God's word tells us that fear is not what we ought to dwell in as God's people. Isaiah 41 verses 9 and 10. Hear the tenderness of God who speaks to you as his people and the, and the grace that he gives you as he tries to encourage you to not be afraid. He says, you are my servant. If you've trusted in Christ, I'll, let me add that in there. I've chosen you. I've not cast you off. And then he goes on to say then, in, in light of that, in light of the salvific work of God, in light of your being born again, your have, having come to Christ, fear not are his next words. For I am with you, not I will be with you. I am presently with you, even in the midst of your deepest pain and fears we could read into that. Do not be dismayed. Why, God? Because I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. How can fear then be, be truer than that? Whose fear disannuls everything that God just said? God said, I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And, and how do I then have the right to say that my fear trumps your faithfulness? My fear is more real than your promise to me, God. Does anybody want to say that today? And I think probably not. But we need to understand that we function as if that were the attitude of our heart when we let fear trump our viewpoint of fellowship. And we simply choose not to engage because there's too much at risk. Then, then how's God's word for us true in that moment? I am your God. I will strengthen you. And your fear says, no, you won't. I'm too weak for this. I can't do it. Fear is more powerful than your promise. Well, God says, I'll help you. No, you won't. I'm fearful. I can't. I'm afraid. You won't help me because you haven't helped me. I've been hurt in the past. And that's simply not true. Yes, you've been hurt in the past. And that's where the truth in that statement stops. God will help you. He will strengthen you. He will uphold you. And he will never fail to do that for you, Christian. But God doesn't stop giving us an admonishment to not fear he says again in Isaiah 43, 1, Fear not. Why? For I have redeemed you. There's our salvation again. I have called you by name. You are mine. This is the God of the universe speaking to you, believer. 1 Peter 3, 14 puts our worst case scenario in perspective. We come to, to all this and we think, okay, that's great if life's not that hard, but what if, what if I have to suffer? And Peter says this, but even if you suffer for doing what's right, all God's promises are failed. No. Peter says, even if you suffer, there's your pain promised. Even if you suffer for what's right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. So what do we have to stand on then? God's word. God's promises, God's pledge. 
So why do we tend then toward indifference or fear? Well, I'll say three things. First, it's, it's, it's personality. Some of us are just wired in these ways. But we don't get to pull the I was born that way card. We're all born sinners. And indifference is one of those sins and fear is one of those sins. And just because we naturally tend in that direction doesn't mean that we're off the hook. Second reason that we tend toward indifference or fear is we've been brought up that way. We've lived in a household of indifference or a household of fear, raised by parents who practice indifference or practice fear. That doesn't get us off the hook either because your upbringing doesn't nullify the word of God, the commands or the promises. The third thing is the one that I want us to really see. The real, the real reason we linger in indifference and fear is because of indwelling sin. It's not your mom and dad's fault as much as it's your fault because God's promised you this morning that he will help you, he will uphold you, he will strengthen you, and you have the obligation to believe that or call God a liar. It's one of the two. To not make judgment on that as, I, I don't know if I can trust that or not, is to fully say, God, you're lying to me. There is no neutral ground where we don't know if we believe it, but we're not calling God out on it yet. To not believe it is to call God out on it. And so we have indwelling sin. Our indifference, our fear shows us that we are still sinful, that we still need the grace of God, and we ought to run to him then. Having biblical relationships or fellowship is countercultural. Here's what I mean by that. You look around anywhere, you're not going to find fellowship on God's terms. We struggle to see it in the church. That's why we're talking about it and focusing on it. So what happens then is, is that we look around for an example of what this looks like so that we can follow it, and we, we struggle to find an example because it's different than everything else the world knows. And everything, everywhere we look outside of God's Word and God's church is pointing us in a different direction, telling us a different story, casting a different narrative for us. And so it's countercultural. You can't look out outside and, and find an example of fellowship the way God wants it to be. So where do we look? We look to God's Word. That's it. That's the only place we've got. We come back to God's Word. We let God define the contours of fellowship. We let God show us the baselines that we run on. We let God tell us what it looks like to have relationship in a way that honors Him and glorifies Him because if we look anywhere else, we won't see it. We need to also see that Jesus died so that we can experience fellowship. That was part of the reason that Jesus came and lived. And part of the reason that he died is because not fellowshipping is sinful. Jesus died for the sin of not fellowshipping. He was raised to, to, to show that he was serious about this and that God had accepted his sacrifice, that our sins have been, the power of those sins have been broken and so that we can walk in new life and that new life requires fellowship. It's the kind of fellowship that Jesus enjoyed within the Trinity for all eternity past and he says, brothers and sisters, you can have this fellowship. You can have this love. You can have this fulfillment. You can have these things if you come to me. And you come to one another and you purpose to leave the world behind and believe the word of my Father. Apart from saving faith, fellowship doesn't exist. We can't experience God-like, biblical, gospel-centered fellowship outside of the body of Christ. It won't happen. So we've got all this going on. We can't look anywhere else and see fellowship on display and we've got inner sin that causes us to want to doubt all of God's promises and then you add to that Satan's craft and subtlety it's the fact that most of us even in the church fail to experience the kind of fellowship and love we were created for 
And then we easily succumb to Satan's temptations when he comes up alongside of us and he says, no one else is experiencing this fellowship that you say exists. It can't exist. Everywhere you look, it's not there. God's word's not, not true. It's a lie. I mean, you're, you're chasing after a pot of gold. You might as well be looking for leprechauns. That's, that's how he comes into our doubts. He comes into our fears and he starts to just sort of tell us what we, what we see. We don't see fellowship. And so the implication that he wants to lead us to is there is no such thing as fellowship. What you want's a unicorn. It's not there. But it is because Satan's a liar. He can't tell you the truth. He wouldn't tell you the truth if he had bucket loads of truth because he hates you. He hates me. He hates God. He hates God's word. He hates the truth. He's a liar from the beginning and a murderer. He's trying to kill you. He's trying to choke your faith. He's trying to, to ravage your, your beliefs. He doesn't love you. He hasn't promised to uphold you with anything. But he wants you to doubt that God will because everywhere else you look besides God's word and among God's people, you don't see what you're looking for. You're you too. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Well, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means we haven't gotten there. So adding to that and moving on from that, we then begin to ignore God's commands on fellowship. We start to think it doesn't exist. And then we begin to ignore God's commands as Satan whispers in our ears, did God really say? You must have misunderstood, brother. You must have misunderstood, sister. God didn't really say it like that. Your pastor, he's, he's I mean, he's, very extreme, very extreme. It, it's, that's not really what God's saying. Then that leads us to reinterpret Scripture. I'm the only one saying this. I must be wrong. God's laying it on my heart right now that fellowship is important, and I, I, I kind of check in with my brothers and sisters in the pew across the aisle, and they're not feeling the same thing. I'm probably wrong. I'm misinterpreting something. Then we back off. We back away. But with every compromise concerning God's word, we dull the sword of the Spirit. Every time we compromise, every time we, we go down this path of unbelief, we might as well take a rock and just bang up the edges of the sword of the Spirit. And then having blunted God's word, we try to numb our wounded consciences with, with painkillers called practical objections. And we say things to ourselves like, I'm too old for fellowship. Or they're too young to fellowship with. I don't have time for fellowship. Life's too busy for fellowship. I have nothing to offer anybody in fellowship anyway. They won't be interested if I try to fellowship. I have nothing to give. We don't have enough room in our house to have people over. There's, we can't fellowship with them. They'll think I'm being fake if I start to fellowship now. We've gone to church together for 20 years. What if they hurt me? What if I let them down? I'm not wired for fellowship. That's just not my personality. This is not my spiritual gift. Fellowship wasn't what God gave me. I don't have the energy to fellowship. Somebody else will fellowship. Yeah, somebody else will take care of it. Or what if I simply fail to fellowship? What if I enter into it and I fail at it? These are all practical objections that we use to numb our consciences that are bleeding because we have... We have just disregarded God's word in so many ways. So whether we tend toward indifference or fear, it will be helpful to ask ourselves some diagnostic questions. God requires people on both ends of the spectrum, whether you're on the indifference end or on the fear end of the spectrum, 
God uh, is calling us to faith-filled action. If you're indifferent, he's calling you to the action of, one, repenting of your indifference because it's sinful. If you're on the fear end, he's calling you to repent of your fear because that's sinful. Just this, Again, two sides of the same coin. You don't believe what God says. And so let's ask some questions of ourselves. In each of these practical objections, the ones that I just listed, life's too busy, I have nothing to offer, it's not my spiritual gift, on and on and on, whatever your excuse is, in each of your practical objections, upon what or upon whom is your focus? When you have that conversation in your own heart and mind about why fellowship isn't your bag, who is your focus on? What is your focus on? Are we depending in those moments on the strength of, on God's strength, the one that he promised to give us in Isaiah, or our weakness? When you come up against the call to fellowship and you walk away with inaction, are you trusting in God's strength to help you fellowship or your own weakness and inability to fellowship? That's the question. Number three, are we trusting in God's infinite resources or in our own limited resources? Are we believing God's promise or are we believing our own fears and objections? Those are the questions that matter this morning in light of a text like this and the call to fellowship and the call to faithfulness. There's a lot on the line here. We are saying something about our position on God's word. We can stand up here all day and say, we believe the Bible, it's the word of God, it's inerrant and it's true and it's trustworthy. But do we live like that? Because this is where the rubber meets the road. This is one of those issues that we, we can't just stand up here and talk about. We have to live about it. And the way we choose to walk out of this message this morning or future messages will say a lot about where our heart really is concerning how trustworthy and true the word of God is. It will say a lot about the level of our faith and the level of our trust in God. So having assessed our lives and seeing that we fall short of God's design, there are a few things I want to call you to in response to this sermon. I want you to leave this, this message. Here's what I want you to do. I'm making it real simple for you. I've got, I've got the application wrapped up. This is what I think every one of us need to do. Ask God for discernment in recognizing symptoms of unbelief in your own heart. They're there. I promise you they're there. Ask God to show you the symptoms of unbelief in your own heart. Secondly, plead with God for the desire to pursue others in love and fellowship out of obedience and faith toward God. Start with him. Say, God, I'm not sure about all these folks I'm going to church with, but I know I love you. I know that I believe you. I'm not sure if they're going to hurt me or not. I'm not sure how this whole thing is going to play out, but I believe your word, and I'm asking you to give me the desire to be obedient to you the desire to trust your word above my fears and above my past experience. Thirdly, I want each of you to thank God that he's provided for your joy to be complete because he says that in here. You want your joy to be complete? Then fellowship. Thank God that there's a way to fill up what, is what you're longing for. We should worship God and thank him for that. And then pray that he would grant you to enjoy that kind of fellowship, the kind that brings him glory. Fourthly, and finally in application, I want you to repent of your doubts and fears. I'm repenting of mine. I want you to repent of yours. I want you to repent of your doubts, fears, and failures to fellowship according to God's word and the way that God has designed it to be. So as we close, I want to remind you that we're engaged with, with an enemy. 
We're at war. We talked about that a couple of weeks back in Sunday school, the armor of God, and we're at constant warfare, and the enemy hates us. He wants to prevent us from living lives that glorify God, and he came to steal our fellowship. He's come to kill our fellowship. He has come to destroy fellowship because that's only what he does. He lies and he came to kill, steal, and destroy, and fellowship is on the list of things that he hates. So he will seek to do so by building strongholds of carnal, unbiblical thinking in our hearts, in your mind, in my mind. He'll, get, he'll, he'll, he'll fill our hearts full of arguments and opinions that are contrary to Scripture. So I want to close with, with Paul's words to the Corinthians. He says about that, that we're absolutely helpless and can't do anything to, to fix the, these arguments and strongholds. No, Paul says, on the, on the contrary, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. That's a, that's a relief. But they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy. This is not what we hope to do. It's what we can do. We can. We will destroy arguments within our own hearts, within our own minds, and every lofty opinion that we or others raise up against the knowledge of God. Paul says we've got what we need. We've got the strength made strong through God so that no argument against fellowship in this church can stand if we choose to walk in faith. Nothing that raises itself against God's knowledge can stand. And then he says this, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. You're not a victim. You're not a victim this morning of your upbringing. You're not a victim of your indwelling sin. You're not a victim of your personality type. You are simply choosing not to trust God, whether through indifference or through fear. And the, 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 the thing that we need to do then is to trust the word and repent Church, we have the power through Jesus Christ our Lord. So choose today who you'll serve. Will you pray with me? Fathers, we end our time in the word this morning. I pray that you will not end your time in dealing with our hearts. I ask God that you would help us to, to hear your word, to see everything that's that is at stake to recognize the danger of choosing to walk out of here not having picked sides because that is a choosing of sides. If we, if we leave this church today choosing not to, to heed any of these commands, choosing not to believe any of these promises, then we have in our hearts, if not publicly, declared your word to be false. And God, I know that that is ultimately not the heart of the people that I go to church with. That is ultimately not the desire of your sheep, O oh God. But we still find ourselves wrestling with fears, paralyzed at times by fear. But what I want us to see and pray that you'll do is make us believe your promises more than we believe our own objections. More than we, when, than we trust in the pain that we felt that we would trust in the pleasure that's promised. God, lead us. Lead us to faithfulness. Lead us to Christ. Lead us to love one another as we ought to. God, obediently and faithfully this morning. And we ask it in Christ's holy and precious name.